So this little girl and her mom are making the Easter ham in the kitchen, and she notices that her mom cuts off two inches on the right side of the ham and two inches on the left side of the ham, and she throws it in the trash. So the little girl says to her mom, she goes, Mom, how come you cut two inches off the left side of the ham and two inches off the right side of the ham and threw it away? And the little girl says, well, that's what my mother, your grandmother, always did. The little girl says, how come? Mom says, I don't know. Call Grandma. So a little girl calls Grandma. She says, Happy Easter. You know, Grandma, when we're making the Easter ham, we cut two inches off the right side of the ham, and we cut two inches off the left side of the ham, and we threw it away. How come? And Grandma says, I don't know. It's what my mother, your great-grandmother, always did. She goes, give her a call. So a little girl calls her great-grandmother. She goes, hey, Nanny. She goes, we're making the Easter ham, and we cut two inches off both sides of the ham, and we threw it away. How come? And the great-grandmother said, well, we had a small oven. A really small oven, right? How many, think about it, think about it. All right, there we go. How many people do the exact same thing in life? They just follow through with what they say they believe. They haven't actually thought through their worldview. They haven't thought through what they believe, why they believe, whether they're atheist, agnostic, Christian, whatever it is. A lot of times people just follow along with what their mother did, what their grandmother did, what their great-grandmother did, and they haven't thought it through. And if it's so important but you haven't thought it through, you may realize that if you hadn't thought it through, most worldviews, actually I believe all worldviews except one, crumble under the scrutiny of truth and light when you actually examine it. And I think this is true for all people, atheists or agnostics or evolutionists or creationism, even Christians. I mean, we're commanded as Christians in the Bible, 1 Peter 3.15, to be able to give an account for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and respect. How many people can actually help someone answer those questions, someone who may be struggling with life? Right? But sadly, I would say most people haven't done that. Right? Why is this so important? If you do believe in God, if God really does exist and you do believe in him, what you think about him or what you don't think about him will affect every single decision you make in life. It affects how you live, how you work, how you treat other people, whether or not you believe in God or don't believe in God. G.K. Chesterton said the problem with not believing in God is not that you'll believe in nothing. It's much, much worse. It's that you'll believe in anything. Right? So how many people have actually thought their worldview through, no matter what it is, and how many people can defend it? What we're going to do in this study is we're going to look at all the different worldviews. We'll start with evolution, and then we'll look at some of the world religions. And the point of this is to look at these and answer the questions of life with kindness and respect. We don't want to study the truth or the Bible to beat someone down. We want to do it so that we can answer other people's questions and hopefully help them out with the truth. We want to show them love undergirded with truth and kindness and respect. The kind and gracious Ravi Zacharias said there's no point in handing someone a rose after you've cut their nose off. That's not the point of the study. We also know that the point of warfare is to kill your enemy, but the point of Christianity is to win your enemy. God desires all men to be saved. We know that because we see that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Winston Churchill said, truth is the most important and powerful weapon in the world. It's so important, it's usually protected by a bodyguard of lies. So let's look at some of the major worldviews and politely and respectfully review them with facts. 
no matter what someone believes, whether it's evolution or creationism, no matter what their religion is, every single person has to answer four questions. And those questions are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. No matter what you believe, you have to answer those four questions. Origin, where do I come from? Meaning, what is the meaning of life? A question that has plagued man since the beginning of time. Morality, what's right and wrong? And destiny, where do I go when I die? Let's start with evolution. How did life begin, and who or what put uh, the matter into the universe? Socrates said we must follow the evidence wherever it leads us. So what are the facts, and what does the evidence say? Well, first of all, no matter what you believe, you believe in miracles. A lot of scientists say, well, I don't believe in God because I don't believe in miracles. Yes, they do. They do believe in miracles. Everyone, atheist, agnostic, or creationism, believes in miracles. And I'll prove that. The universe exists, and there's only three possible explanations for the existence of the universe. No matter how much you think about it, you can think about it when you go home and you're laying in bed tonight, there's only three possible explanations for the universe. Number one, it was created by an all-powerful, all-knowing being, i.e. God. That's pretty miraculous. Option number two is the universe created itself out of absolutely nothing. Not even thin air. Air didn't exist. It just popped into being and we get supernovas and red giants and life out of absolutely nothing. That's pretty miraculous. Option number three is the universe always existed. It eternally existed. And based on the law of thermodynamics, if that was true, the law of thermodynamics says the energy would have been all used up now. So number three, that's pretty miraculous too. So no matter what you believe, it was created by an all-powerful being, it created itself out of nothing, or it eternally existed, you believe in miracles. The question isn't, do you believe in miracles? The question is, which miracle do you believe in? So we look at option number three. We'll start there. If the universe always existed, it's called the solid state theory. Up until the 20th century, some scientists, some brilliant scientists, said the universe always existed. They called it the solid state theory. But in 1929, Ed Hubble discovered evidence that the universe was expanding. The universe actually did, in fact, have a known beginning. Less than 100 years ago, science tells us that the universe had a beginning. Of course, 3,500 years ago, God told us the universe had a beginning. It's nice to see science finally catching up with the Bible, right? So option number three doesn't work. It's already been disproven. It couldn't have eternally existed. There would be no matter and no energy in the universe. As a matter of fact, physicists and, and, and the brilliant people in the world, the scientists, say there's so much matter and energy in the universe they know it exists, but they can't see it, so they make up something called dark matter. They don't, have an, they don't know what it is, but they call it dark matter. The law of thermodynamics says it doesn't work. So option number three can be taken off the table. Option number two is evolution. The universe created itself out of absolutely nothing. If the Big Bang theory is true, then that's the second step. That's the explosion. It doesn't answer origin. It doesn't tell us where did this primordial soup that exploded come from? It said there was a huge explosion. Okay, and I'm not saying that's not true, but where did that stuff that exploded come from? It doesn't answer origin. We can never replicate the Big Bang Theory because something outside of time and space created time and space. It's a non-repeatable event. 
says science. It could never happen again. So I'd like to give you a quote, and this quote is from a non-Christian. I think it's important to point that out. He's a skeptic at best. His name is Dr. Robert Jastrow, and he wrote a book called God and, the, God and the Astronomers. But before I read you his quote, I just want you to hear his credentials. He got his PhD in theoretical physics from Columbia University. He was the first chairman of NASA's lunar exploration. He was the chief of theoretical division of NASA, 1958 to 1961. He was the founding director of NASA Goddard Institute of Space. He was a professor of geophysics at Columbia. He was a professor of earth science at Dartmouth University, 1981 to 1982. And he worked with Werner von Braun, one of the most decorated scientists in American history. And here's what Dr. Jastrow said in his book. He says, quote, science cannot answer who or what put the matter of energy into the universe. The universe has a beginning in which all the known laws of physics are invalid. Right? Listen to that. The universe had a beginning in which all the known laws of physics are invalid. He then goes on to say he sees no disagreement with what the Bible says in Genesis about the creation versus what science knows about the Big Bang. He sees no discrepancy. Now again, this was a skeptic. He was not a Christian. He wasn't pushing a biblical agenda. But he was honest. Evolution cannot answer the first question of origin, of where this primordial soup came from that exploded. But some would argue that we came to being from time plus matter plus chance. Really, time plus matter plus chance. Would anyone look at a dictionary and say, I think that's the result of a printing press explosion? Thanks, Todd. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? There's intelligence behind it. There's words. There's language. It's in alphabetical order. There's spelling. There's pronunciation. There's a definition. There are synonyms, all in order, glued together in a book. No one would say, ah, oh, it's a result of a printing press explosion. There's intelligence behind it. It needed intelligence to be created. And that's just a dictionary. How much more complex, not at life, but just one system in the human body, a digestive system, circulatory system. It's so much more complex than just a dictionary. As James Perloff wrote in his book, Tornado in a Junkyard, would anyone ever in a, in a million years, in their wildest guess, think a tornado would spin through a junkyard and perfectly assemble a 747 jet with the engines and the, and the flaps and the controls and the dials and the oxygen that falls down perfectly when it's supposed to be? No. And if that actually did happen, would you fly in that jet? Probably not. Last century, scientists cracked open the human DNA and found that one single strand of DNA has over 3.1 billion, with a B, billion bits of information. 3.1 billion bits of information. There's over 10 trillion strands of DNA in the human body. Now, if I had 3.1 billion ping pong balls up here, numbered 1 through 3.1 billion, and I called you up here and blindfolded you and asked you to pull out number one. And let's say you actually did. People in the audience would be pretty amazed. And if I kept you blindfolded and said, okay, now stay, pick out number two, and you pulled it out, you'd be really blown away. But if you were still blindfolded and then you picked out number three, you wouldn't believe it. You'd say it was fixed. It's a scam. It's rigged. And that's just after three. Now imagine if I did that for all 3.1 billion ping pong balls in consequential order. 
it's impossible. Science calls that irreducible complexity. When something is so beyond realistic expectations, it's impossible. The number that science and mathema uh, mathematicians put on it is 1 times 10 to the 50th power. That's number 1 followed by 50 zeros, which is a huge number, right? 1 and 6 zeros is a million, 9 zeros is a billion, 12 zeros is a trillion. There's not even a number for 50 zeros. But anything beyond 1 times 10 to the 50th power, 1 with 50 zeros after it, is considered mathematically and scientifically impossible. It's because of this that there was a famous atheist, Anthony Flew, who was very vocal in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, brilliant man, converted to Christianity when they cracked open the human DNA. And he said, because the mathematical impossibility of life starting on its own is too much to fathom. And the number that science has put on, not life starting in the universe, but life starting on Earth, is 1 times 10 to the 40,000th power. That's 1 with 40,000 zeros after it. It's mathematically impossible. And that's why a brilliant atheist like Anthony Flew converted to Christianity. So it doesn't answer origin. Then you look at the question, the second question of morality, what is right and wrong? Evolution doesn't give us morality. On the contrary, evolution is blood red with tooth and claw built on its foundational principles of might makes right, survival of the fittest, and natural selection. Evolution says, if I am stronger than you, I should kill you so that I can perpetuate the species. That's what evolution says. How is that moral? Right? People cry, there's so much evil all the time. We see a male come in, it kills the other male, it slaughters all the children, and then does whatever it wants sexually to the female. They cry unfair. So I ask you, what are we going to do about the lions of the Angora Crater, the cats of the Serengeti Plain, the polar bears of the Arctic? We don't cry unfair. As a matter of fact, National Geographic has made countless tens of millions of dollars filming this, and we watch it. We don't get upset with another, when another lion kills the incumbent lion, kills all the cubs, so we can reproduce with the other lion, lioness. Right? We don't get upset about that. So why do we get upset when we hear about a man killing another man? Why do we get upset when we hear about a tragedy? Why do we get upset when we hear about a school shooting? Evolution doesn't give us morality. As a matter of fact, morality is a detriment to evolution because if the male lion is stronger and he sees a weaker male lion, he should kill it. But if he thinks to himself, well, I should kill it, but it's probably wrong, so I won't, the species gets weaker. Right? We hear about a school shooting. We don't ask, well, what have the kids contributed to society that were killed? What was their religion? What was their nationality? What was their gender? What was their view on politics? Were they left or were they right? We don't ask those questions. We're just heartbroken by the tragedy. Why? Because morality does exist, but evolution doesn't give us that. Science doesn't tell us what's right or wrong. All science does is make observations. Science tells us what's happening, and it reports on it. Newton's laws of physics never once in the history of mankind started a billiard ball rolling. But it does tell us what's happening to that ball after it's moving, after an outside force acted on that billiard ball. Science can tell us a lot of things with observations. Science can tell us you've just killed a 12-month-old baby. Science can tell you you're eating a 12-month-old baby. But science doesn't tell you it's wrong to do that. Bertrand Russell is a brilliant atheist. He was asked a question on morality. And he says, the question was, where does it come from? And this brilliant atheist says, I don't know what the answer is. 
but I have to live as if morality is real. Canadian atheist Kai Nielsen says this, quote, pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. These are brilliant atheists saying evolution doesn't give us morals. So if evolution doesn't give us morals, where does it come from? It doesn't come from people, because in this world there are some cultures that love their neighbors, and there are other cultures that kill their neighbors and eat them. So who are you to say which culture is right? Were the Nazis right? Most people would argue no. The Nazis would argue yes. Morality can't come from people because we're involved. So if evolution is true, it also states that humanity should be evolving. Everything evolves for the better, right? Which is what they say, all these mutations are for the better. If evolution is true, then this world should be getting better. Would anyone in their right mind say this world, I see your eyes, would anyone say this world is getting better? Not even close. Just last century, in the 20th century, we killed more humans than the previous 19 centuries combined. Just with three people, with Stalin, Lenin, and Mao Zedong, in Russia and China, they killed 120 million people. Not even enemies from outside the country. Their own people, 120 million people, killed by three atheists because of what they don't believe about God. That's not even counting Hitler. Science doesn't disprove God. If anything, the more we learn about science, the more we realize there is no possible way life just happened. Option number two seems absurd. The universe is fine-tuned, balanced on a razor's edge. There's so much evidence for design from human DNA to Fibonacci sequence, which some people call the fingerprint of God. Einstein said, quote, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's so comprehensible. It ought not to be. If we came from an explosion, there should be chaos. There shouldn't be such order and mathematics and fine-tuning of the environment. But there is, almost as if someone wants us to discover it. Romans 1 in the Bible tells us there's not a lack of evidence. There's so much evidence it's ridiculous but rather there's a suppression of evidence. Many brilliant minds at the highest level of universities in physics and biology have now abandoned evolution. And they're thinking in terms of intelligent design. You hear it all the time, ID, intelligent design. They've ab ab abandoned evolution and now they talk about the panspermia theory. And the panspermia theory says that we were seeded here by intelligent life form, i.e. aliens. Richard Dawkins, an atheist teacher at Oxford, when asked the question, is it possible we were planted here by intelligent life form? He said, yeah, it's possible we were planted here by aliens. So Richard Dawkins isn't against intelligent design. He's against divine design. He has no problems with aliens planting us here, but not God. Right? But this just opens up more questions. It doesn't give us any more answers. It gives us more questions. So if that is true, where do the aliens come from? Where was E.T. phoning when he was phoning home? It just leaves more questions, right? Dawkins also went on to say that science, he said this publicly many times, science cannot disprove God. 
Dawkins it says, science cannot disprove God, but yet he rejects him. Well, that's intellectually dishonest. If you can't disprove option X, then option X is still on the table. Option X is still a possibility. And if science can't disprove God, then God is still a possibility, but not for Dawkins. That's scientifically and intellectually corrupt. He's not being a scientist. He's biased and antagonistic towards God. And he has intellectual dishonesty. The fact is, atheism is a dead-end street with no answers. Everyone's heard of Friedrich Nietzsche. I learned about him in school. He lived in the late 1900s. Uh, I'm sorry, in the late 1800s. And he coined the phrase, God is dead. He was talking about a superman, a super race, which, by the way, Hitler believed that and gave a copy of his writings to Mussolini and to Stalin. But you talk about what Nietzsche taught, and they teach it in schools, but they don't teach you about his life. Right? How did his worldview work out for him? Well, he died in his mid-50s. In the last 13 years of his life, he was in an insane asylum, completely unable to speak. Why? Because his worldview of atheism was unlivable, and it betrayed him. 13 years unable to speak. Sam Harris is another atheist. He said, human free will is an illusion if there is no God. Richard Dawkins says, nature and evolution is blind, pitiless, and indifferent. If you believe in evolution, then you don't believe in good or evil. You believe everyone is just dancing to their own DNA. You believe what you believe because of your DNA. You act how you act because of the proteins and peptides that make up your chemical composition. There is no free thought. There's no such thing as evil. It's just matter of chance, right? So if you really believe in evolution, you don't believe in evil, you don't believe in good, you don't believe that Hitler was a bad person. He was just doing what his DNA told him to do. You also don't believe that Mother Teresa was a good person. She was just doing what her DNA told her to do. Can anyone honestly ever look anyone in the eye and say there's no difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa? It's beyond absurd. But that's when you follow evolution out to its natural progress, to its natural conclusion, this is what you get. There is no evil. There is no good. Mother Teresa and Hitler are basically the same person. That's what evolution says. I'll close this portion of the talk on evolution with a quote from David Belinsky. David Belinsky, uh, by the way, is also a skeptic. He is not a Christian. But he has much, much better credentials than Richard Dawkins. And he wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion. And this is just from the inside flap of his book cover. Here's what he says. Has anyone proved or provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it's even here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be finely tuned to even allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything as long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in the philosophies justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. 
is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. Again, this is not a Christian. This is a skeptic at best, but a brilliant scientist who's at least honest. And he's tired of the non-factual, biased opinions of atheists pushing their own agenda, pushing their own religion. Atheism is a religion. And he's tired of them pushing it, so he wrote that book. Evolution doesn't answer the questions of origin. It doesn't answer the question of morality. Meaning, it says, there is no meaning. doesn't matter what you do. And when you die, you just disappear. It doesn't give us any answers. It only leaves us with more questions and absolutely no hope. So option two, I think it's pretty easy to rule that out just scientifically and mathematically. So we move to now religions. Option number one, if an all-powerful, all-knowing being created the universe, who is he? Who is God? We'll look at Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and the Christian Judeo faiths. Some people might say, can't we all just get along? Right? I have a tolerance bumper sticker on my Prius. Can't we just be tolerant? You know, it, it's funny we hear tolerance promoted so much by the media and TV that we can't even share ideas or express our own beliefs anymore. If we believe something's to be true, we're told it's even judgmental to share that. Really? Is that intolerant? If I see you driving off a cliff, is it intolerant for me to scream stop? But that's what they'll say. I love what Dr. Michael Ramsden said. He's a brilliant speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and in one of his speeches, uh, he said, tolerance isn't really a good word, right? It's one of those funny words. It's actually incredibly negative, right? If I went out to dinner with Leo and someone asked me, hey, how was your dinner with Leo? And I said, it was tolerable. I tolerated him, right? Would you be happy if you heard that? Of course not. It's insulting. It's not a very good word. We don't need tolerance. We need truth undergirded with love and respect and kindness. There is truth in the world, and all truth is exclusive. The law of non-contradiction is alive and well. And what the law of non-contradiction says, two statements of opposing value cannot both be true at the same time without a qualifier. Right? So what that means, if I say I have brown eyes, I'm also saying I don't have blue eyes and I don't have green eyes. If I say 2 plus 2 is 4, I'm also saying it's not 3, it's not 5, it's not any other number. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. Right? G.K. Chesterton said, there is only one angle you can stand perfectly upright and a myriad of angles that you can fall down. All the major religions of the world claim exclusivity. This isn't unique just to Christianity. They can't all be right. Islam claims that Christ never died. And by the way, when you read the Quran, Jesus Christ is spoken about more than any other person in the Quran, more than Muhammad. But they say he's not God. Judaism claims that Christ died and was crucified, but he wasn't resurrected. Both Hinduism and Buddhism claim Jesus Christ was a good prophet, but he was not God. Christianity claims that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who left heaven, became a man, remained perfect, died on the cross for your sins, and rose three days later for the forgiveness of all sins. In Buddhism, you must deny yourself. In Hinduism, you must affirm the deity that you're divine within yourself. They can't all be right. There's too, there's too much contradiction. So which one is it? Some people say, well, just all roads lead to Rome. 
You know what they're saying? It's just whoever people believe in God, they're going to get to heaven. That's actually incredibly insulting. Some religions, like Buddhism, don't even believe in heaven. They believe in release or moksha. So to say all roads lead to heaven is incredibly offensive to Buddhists. So clearly all roads don't lead to heaven because not all religions believe in heaven. All the major religions in the world except one tell you how good people get to heaven, how if you do enough good works, your good works will outweigh your bad works, and you can author your own salvation into heaven or the desired release of moksha. Only the Christian Judeo viewpoint tells you how bad people get to heaven, which is great for me because I'm a bad person. It's not that funny, Todd. <laughs> Islam tells you that if your good works outweigh your bad works, you have a shot to get to heaven, but it's still up to Allah whether or not he wants to let you into heaven. And if you do get into heaven, by the way, Allah is not there. He will not condescend to associate with humans. He's above that. There is no personal relationship in Islam. Hinduism tell you that, tells you that you exist because of your past life, because of karma. Every life a birth, every birth a rebirth. Your life now is a result of your past life. The problem with that is they can't explain the first life. Well, if this life is a result of my last life, and that life, the result of the life before that, how do you explain the very first life? There is no answer. It can't answer origin. Buddha was actually born a Hindu, and he rejected it. He rejected the karma and the immobile caste society. He rejected the Vedas, the authority of the priests, and the scriptures. He completely condemned Hinduism. He said Hinduism is wrong. Buddhist is, Buddhist, Buddhism is right because truth is exclusive. Buddhism also believes that all life is pain. Pain comes from desires. And if you eliminate all your desires, then you won't have any pain. To desire absolutely nothing, really, to care for nothing is the meaning of life? If a man or a woman have a child, they sh sh shouldn't care for it? They just walk away? Where is love? Where is relationships? I can't imagine that being a real God who says the purpose of life is to completely be ambivalent and ignore every single other person. But by the way, they say you have to desire nothing. That's a desire. To desire nothing is a desire. So how can you have no desires if you desire to have nothing? It implodes upon itself, again, under the scrutiny of light and truth. Like the ostrich that just sticks his head in the sand in Proverbs, are we to care for no one and nothing? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are relational, and the one true God wants to have a relationship with us. And the amazing thing is, which is mind-blowing if you stop and think about it, we can have a relationship with the one true God who created the heavens and the earth through his Son and his work on the cross. And he showed us how to live and how to be close to him. Just as marriage has rules, so God gives us rules for life. If you get married, is it okay if your spouse just sleeps with everyone? Are you okay if your spouse just lies to you constantly? Of course not. You're not going to have a good marriage. There are rules to having a good marriage. Fidelity, honesty are the foundational principles of trust in a good relationship. How much more important are the rules that God gives us on life? And people say, well, he's a cruel taskmaster. He gives us rules for our benefit, right? An all-knowing, all-powerful God, you ever think, might know a little better than we do. 
and he's given us these rules. Dr. Abdu Mari, another brilliant speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, was uh, giving a speech, and he was talking about a conversation he was having with one of his friends. And he was going over all the facts, some that I presented with you tonight about irreducible complexity and the miracles and everything else. And all the facts clearly point to God. And the gentleman just said, I just don't believe it. So Abdu said, can I just ask you, what is your big hang-up? Why don't you accept Christianity? And the gentleman looked at him and says, I just, I think it's arrogant. And Abdu says, well, well, what do you mean? He goes, I think it's arrogant to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven, that you think you have the monopoly on getting to heaven. I think that's arrogant. And Abdu said, I appreciate the candor and the honesty. Let's talk about this. I'm a Christian. I believe what the Bible says. And the Bible says there's nothing good about me. From the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, there's no soundness in me. I'm a sinner born. From the, from the moment I'm born, there's nothing good about me. I deserve to go to hell. And apart from the grace of God, I can't get there. I'm completely 100% reliant on Jesus Christ, my Savior. You believe that if you do enough good works, they'll outweigh your bad works. And you believe if you're a good enough person, you can get to heaven. You can become your own Savior. You manufacture your own salvation and get yourself to heaven by yourself. You become your own Savior. I'm completely reliant upon the grace of God knowing I can't do it. You're reliant on yourself. Which way is really arrogant? He also went on to ask his friends, he said, tell me, by the way, what is a good work? And his friend said, doing anything for anyone else without expecting anything in return. He goes, well, hold on a second. If that's a good work and that's how you get to heaven, every time you do something good for someone else, you're doing it so you can get to heaven. You're expecting something in return. You can never do a good work. Your own philosophy has imploded upon itself once you think it through. When you look at your worldview, you think it through. If I'm only doing this good work because I'm self-focused, because I want to get to heaven, it's not really a good work. So every other religion in the world besides the Christian Judeo viewpoint doesn't work. You can't do good works if you're trying to get something in return. In the Christian faith, we can do good works, not to earn our way to salvation because it's by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourself, not of works that no one may boast in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We do good works because of our gratitude and our immense love for God and what he's done for us. His friend said he never thought about it like that. Well, maybe you should. Right? That's the problem with most people, especially in America. We're so busy with fill in the blank, pleasure, TV, movies, social media, work, whatever it is. We don't stop to think about what life is really about, about what is truly important and what is importantly true. Blaise Pascal is a brilliant thinker in the 1600s. He gave us many principles, uh, mathematical and philosophical principles. He spoke about how fluids react under certain pressure, principles we still use today. I think his most brilliant work was in probability. He came up with what's called Pascal's Wager. And what Pascal's Wager says is that every single person is entered into a bet. The moment they're born, you have no choice. You take that first breath as a child, as a baby, as an infant, and you're entered into this bet. And the bet is, do you believe God exists or not? Does God exist or does he not exist? And the wager is your soul. He goes on to say, if you live life like God does exist, but he really doesn't. You're probably going to lose a little bit of time and money. 
because you consider others more important than yourselves, you give to charity, you help others out. But at the end of your life, you die and you find out there really isn't a God. No harm, no foul. You just dissipate and that's it. However, on the other hand, if God does exist and you live like he does not exist, whatever you think you gain in this life materially, when you get to the end of life and you stand before God, you suffer the most unimaginable loss possible. Eternal separation from God the Father for all of eternity in the lake of fire. So what are you betting your soul on? And if this is of such importance, why don't we spend more time searching out the truth? Why don't we spend more time seeing if God is who he says he is? Why don't we spend more time reading the Bible and less time watching the Kardashians? Sorry, Leo. <laughs> Francis Chan, in one of his sermons, uh, was giving a speech, and he said that someone called him fanatical. They said, Francis, you just take this God thing a little too seriously. I think you're fanatical. And he said, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to prepare to meet God and spend all of eternity with him. You're killing yourself to prepare for the last 20 or 30 years of retirement in this life. I'm preparing to spend all of eternity with God. Who's really fanatical? I remember when I was a teenager, one of my good friends said he didn't believe the Bible because it was just a bunch of stories passed down. It was kind of like the game telephone. Someone says something, passes it on to someone else. By the time it gets around the room, it's just so distorted, it's unbelievable, and that's what the Bible is. The things didn't really happen. It was all fable. I didn't believe him, but I was a teenager. I didn't really care. I didn't have any facts to back it up. I kind of dismissed it. I still believe the Bible and left it at that. Years later, after looking into this statement, a statement, by the way, which he stated as absolute fact, which is just another lie told by the world, I realized this couldn't be more opposite. The fact is the Jewish people were amazing at keeping records. They were amazing at history. There are over, to this day, right now, there are over 5,800 original manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, between 2,000 and 3,500 years old. 5,800 manuscripts, in whole or in part, preserved today all over the world. Let's put that in perspective. Shakespeare lived in the 1600s, after the printing press was invented. The printing press was invented in 1492. A hundred years later, Shakespeare comes on the scene. How many original manuscripts do you think we have of Shakespeare between Romeo and Juliet and King Lear and Hamlet and all the wonderful writings only 400 years ago, keep that in mind, and after the printing press was around? We have not one. There is not one original manuscript from Shakespeare from only 400 years ago with the printing press available. But yet with the Bible, we have over 5,800 copies 2,000 to 3,500 years ago with no printing press. This is just another prophecy in the Bible. God said, heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will not. Another prophecy come true. We have more information, more historical evidence, more documents about the person of Jesus Christ than anyone in ancient history by a long shot, not just from the Bible, but from secular historians like Josephus, who lived in the first century. First-hand eyewitness accounts. We can see all these facts, and we see so many prophecies. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. None of them have been disproven 
Most of them have come true. The ones that haven't come true haven't been disproven. They just haven't come about yet, like the rapture and the tribulation and other things. There are so many prophecies. I'm going to focus just on two tonight. When you look at the book of Revelation, it was written by the Apostle John over 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he wrote that in the end times, no one will be able to buy or sell anything without a number. Throughout all of human history, there has been currency, whether coins or a barter system, you know, I'll give you a goat, give me the three chickens, whatever it was. There's always been some type of currency. Only today in our generation do we see this prophecy coming true. Last year in America, less than 3% of transactions were done with cash. Every other transaction was done with a number. If you travel on an airline today, you know that they'll tell you, you can't buy anything without a credit card. We do not accept cash. So if you don't have a credit card on an airline, you can't buy anything. You're not selling anything, but you can't buy anything. Right? When the Apostle John wrote this, he probably didn't know what it meant. But he wrote it anyway because God the Holy Spirit told him to write it, and he did. And we see it coming true today, 2,000 years later. One of my favorite ones is about crucifixion. The Psalm 22 was written in 10 B.C., around 1,000 B.C. And it says that the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced. At first glance, that's not really a big deal. You read it, okay. But then you look at world history. The first record in world history of a crucifixion is King Darius in Persia in 519 B.C. Crucifixion had not been invented in 1000 B.C. It was invented around 500 B.C. But yet Psalm 22 tells us the Messiah will have his hands and feet pierced. When they wrote it, it was probably the same thing. What does this mean? I don't know. God the Holy Spirit told me to write it, so I'm writing it. 400 years before crucifixion said the Messiah would be killed by a manner of death that we don't even know exists today. Just another prophecy that comes true. The Bible is true. And since it is true, there is absolutely nothing in all of human history that rivals its importance. If it is the word of God from God himself, then clearly nothing is even remotely important as the Bible. It is truth, and it is life. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't say, I know some truth. He said, I am truth. He said, I am the way to eternal life, and no one gets to heaven apart from me. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, made a point that the Lord Jesus Christ, some people say, was a good man. But if he was a good man, then he never lied. And if he never lied, we have to believe what he said then. He constantly said throughout all of Scripture that I am God. Ego I me, I am. The same name that God gave to Moses back in Exodus, Jesus Christ said constantly, I am. And we'll see a few Scriptures here. So if he never lied, you have to come to the conclusion Jesus Christ is either who he says he is, which is God in the flesh, dwelling amongst people, or he's a raving lunatic, or he's something much, much, much worse, the devil himself trying to lead people to hell. He either is who he says he is, or you must dismiss him as Satan. He didn't leave this up for interpretation. He didn't intend to. And just a few scriptures in Isaiah 9, 6 we see a child is born and a son is given to us, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and his kingdom will have no end. In John 1, 1, we see in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
in John 1.14, the Word, which was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 10.30, he says, The Father and I are one, making himself out to be equal to God the Father. In Matthew 26.65, the high priest cried blasphemy and said, We have no further need of witness because he makes himself out to be God. In Acts 20.28, we see that God purchased the church with his blood. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit don't have blood. God the Son does. In Zechariah 12.10, Psalm 22.16, and Isaiah 53.5, we see that God has pierced hands and feet. In Acts 9.5, one of my favorites, on the road of Damascus and his conversion experience when the Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, when he gets knocked off his horse, he says, God, who are you? And he answers, my name is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ was crystal clear. He didn't have an, a personality conflict. He knew who he was. He told us who he was constantly. He says, I am God in the flesh, and apart from me, you are dead in your sins, and you can do nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And this is the truth, that whoever believes on him will have eternal life and never perish. The Bible is crystal clear on describing our problems. From the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, there is no soundness in us. There is not one righteous person, not even one. We see that in Jeremiah 17.9 and in Matthew 15.19. You also see in Ezekiel 11.19 and then in 36.26 that we are born with a heart of stone and only Jesus Christ can change that into a heart of flesh. He is the only answer. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't tell us what we wanted to hear. Going around telling people you're evil, you're sinful, you're dead in your sins. He didn't tell us what we wanted to hear. That's a real tough way to get people behind you. But he told us the truth. And today we see millions and millions of people following. And back then, of the 12 apostles, 11 of them died a martyr's death. When put up against crucifixion or, or death or the sword, they didn't say, I'm just kidding. And liars make really bad martyrs. Malcolm Mugridge says, The depravity of man is the most empirically verifiable fact, but at the same time, it's the most intellectually resisted. Why are we so quick to not say we're sinners? Why do people have such a hard time acknowledging that we're sinners? Look at the law. God gave Moses 613 laws. Forget about that. Look at just the Ten Commandments. Who here has kept the law? Who here can stand up and say, I have never lied? I have never thought one judgmental thing about another person. Right? I have never said one bad thing about another person. I have always considered other people more important than me. <laughs> Good luck with that. The Bible is crystal clear. We're born depraved separated from God, and we need a Savior, and nothing we can do of ourselves is good enough to get us to heaven. We cannot manufacture our own salvation, no matter how hard we try. Mother Teresa has done more good works than everyone in this room combined, all of us. If she didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as her God and Savior, she's not in heaven right now. None of us are good enough. God is holy, and we are not. God cannot be in the presence of sin. He hates sin so much. Look at the cross. You can reject it all you want, but much in the same way you can reject gravity, it's a losing proposition. 
You know, I've heard some people say, well, I make my own reality. Okay, go jump off a building. Tell me what your reality is like. It doesn't work. You can choose what you want to do, but you can't choose the consequences of the results of your decisions. Decisions have consequences. We have free will, but you don't control the consequences. Luckily for us, God has done all the work because he is faithful in spite of us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and we love because he first loved us. If the value of something is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it, how valuable does God consider you when you look at the cross? You are so valuable to God. You are infinitely valuable. Every single soul is so important to God. And this is where we get morality, because back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God says we were made imago Dei in the image of God, both man and woman in the image of God. And if we're the image of God, then we have infinite value. And that's where morality comes from. I don't treat you well because of your gender or your nationality or what you believe. I treat you well because you are made in the image of God. That is where morality comes from. Evolution cannot answer that. They have nothing. They say uh, morality actually is a detriment for us. 5,000 years ago, Father Abraham was asked by God to take his son up on a hill and sacrifice him. And as he lifted up his knife and was about to plunge it into his son's chest, God said, stop. I myself will provide for myself. 3,000 years after that, 2,000 years ago for us, we see God fulfilling that promise, taking his own son up to Calvary's hill as a sacrifice. This time, the, the knife did not stop. And God sacrificed his son on the cross for the forgiveness of sins for the entire world, the Lamb of God. And if you were the only person that actually needed a Savior, he would have done it all just for you. If somehow everyone else could keep themselves sinless, which we can't, he would have done it just for you. You're that valuable to God. Some people say, you know, there's just so much pain in this world. If God does exist, why is there so much pain? If you think about it, there really are only four options for God's creation. Right? The first option is he could have created nothing. Just God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect union perfect fellowship and perfect love, and no people or angels or anything. That's option number one. Option number two is he could have created a world with only evil, an amoral world. Well, that sounds awful. Option number three is he could have created a world with only good. And some people say that sounds great. But the reality is it's not, because that's a deterministic world. If there's only good, then there is no free will. And if there's no free will, there's no love. Option number four is he created the world as we have it today, with both good and evil, with free will and love. And this is the only option for there to be love that exists. We're not robots. We do have free will, and we can choose for God, or we can choose against God. God has done all the work, and he knows that there is suffering in life. There's also a lot of good in life, but there's also a lot of evil. But God is not an absentee landlord that stands back and says, good luck, kids. He threw himself in the middle of suffering. Look at the cross, right? He understands everything we have ever gone through. He has been tempted in all areas as we are, yet without sin. And the cross was the most horrific way anyone could ever die. 
And the way he went through it is more than anything anyone will ever understand, just being separated from God the Father. He didn't cry out when he was physically beaten. He cried out when he was separated from God the Father. We can't even begin to understand that. But he relates with us. He didn't stand back. He got directly involved. And not only that, he acquiesced to become a man. It's like us saying, I'm going to become a cockroach and live amongst the cockroaches while they beat me and betray me and kill me and then stay a cockroach forever because I love them. Unfathomable. Salvation, as I said, is by faith through grace, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We must repent of our sinful lifestyle and accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our God and Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ said, follow me. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. It is our privilege to do so, and in doing so, we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. This unbelievable love story in which God left heaven, became a man, and voluntarily died on the cross. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill him. He laid his own life down, as was prophesied in the scriptures. And he did all this so you can spend eternity with him. Throughout all of human history, people have said, what is the meaning of life? People have asked, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is so simple. It is to glorify God and then enjoy him for all of eternity. That is the meaning of life. It's the greatest love story ever told, and it's true. Why wouldn't you want to share this truth with kindness and respect to everyone, especially if they're lost, especially if they're in the dark? If you know they haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, you know they're going to hell. And some people say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? That's a wrong question. It's a bad supposition. God doesn't send anyone to hell. For God so loved the world, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely begotten son that whosoever believes in him can have eternal life. But you have free will. You can reject this most beautiful gift of salvation. You can reject the good news. God doesn't force you to believe in his son. So if you say, I reject that, I don't want to spend eternity with you, God. God is so faithful, he honors your final dying request. And he lets you go to hell, which is the only place where God isn't. People don't know what they're asking for. But that's their fault for not looking into the reality of what they believe. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When you look at justice and mercy in this life, it's really a paradox. I can't offer you both justice and mercy. If you offend me, I can either give you mercy and overlook what you've done, or I can demand justice and make you pay for what you did. If I give you mercy, I'm not getting justice. If I ask for justice, then I'm not showing you mercy. Only God in his infinite wisdom can show justice, mercy, forgiveness, and love, and it's all on the cross. His justice was satisfied by the sacrificial offering of his son, Jesus Christ, God the Son. He was satisfied with the payment of sins that he made on our behalf, and he showed us forgiveness, mercy, and love. It's a story of hope, it's a story of truth, it's of meaning, and it's a story of love. It's the meaning of life, it gives us all the answers to our questions. Origin, where do I come from? God created me. What's the meaning of life? To glorify God and spend all of eternity enjoying his presence. What's morality? What's right and wrong? Everything he says in the Bible is right and wrong. I don't get to pick what I want to do. This is his universe. I may have a better idea, but I don't have a universe. So I'll get in line, 
and then destiny. Where do I go when I die? It depends on what your free will decision is. God is truth. God is love. And love always wins. Let us share the greatest love story of all time. And in doing so, we share the truth and life and hope with other people with kindness and respect. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We're so grateful for every person listening to this message now or in the future. We pray that you'll open hearts and cause us to understand the truth, my Father. We're so finite with our tiny little minds. But show us the truth. If you really exist, if you really are who you say you are, show yourself to us. Make it known. I believe that there's not a lack of evidence, but a suppression of it. As Romans 1 says, my Father, cause us to know you, your Holy Spirit, and your most precious Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the children throughout the world. We thank you for every single person whose name is written in the book of life. We can't wait to see you face to face, and we hope that our lives will be pleasing to you for as long as we do have left in this short, short life. We thank you for everything, and we pray all this in the name of our precious Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.